Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning to Rafael Bostic, the president of the Atlanta Fed, and welcome to Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. Thanks for being with us this morning. I want to start by asking about the new framework. We know what it is. Appropriate monetary policy will likely aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time. But what does that mean to you? How do you define moderately above and how long is some time? Well, first of all, Mike, thank you for having me on Bloomberg this morning. It's really good to be here. I don't talk to you often enough. Uh, but in, in, in terms of your question, what I would say is for me, one of the challenges that we've had historically is that when unemployment or when the employment level has gotten too low, there's been a concern among economists and policymakers that that would trigger inflation that wouldn't be able to be controlled. And so the action typically has been that we're going to uh, try to stop that, that uh, uh, labor market from overheating. And then in turn, that can put a damper on inflation. Uh, what we saw over the last 10 years or so is that we could get em employment to a very high level uh, without seeing that inflation. And, and so we wanted to be very clear in the longer run goal statement that we're going to wait to see for evidence of that overheating uh, before we start to take action. And I think that's the biggest uh, the message that, to come out of that statement. Well, what is the evidence that you would look for? Is there a, a level of inflation above 2% that is kind of your ceiling? So for me, I would say um, I'm comfortable being above 2%. And, and it's actually more the trajectory than the levels. So if we were at 2.2 or 2.3, and it looked like we were going to be stable there for a while, uh, that would be fine. You know, over the last five or six years, we've been at one six and one seven and been at a stable level. Uh, so that would be kind of the, the flip side of that. By contrast, if we were at 2.2 and then the next quarter we were at 2.4 and then we we're at 2.6, that trajectory is the thing that would give me some concern. So for me, I'm going to be, certainly the level is going to be something to pay attention to, but for me, the trajectory is much more important. Well, uh, give me your levels uh, from the forecast that you made. Where do you think growth and inflation and unemployment are going to be in three years? Well, in three years, hopefully we will have the pandemic past us. Uh, we will have sort of figured out what all the structural changes that have gone on mean. And the economy will be back on a robust path. So our long-term uh, estimate for our models is around 2% growth. Uh, inflation can go at above 2% as well. I, I actually think just before the, the crisis, uh, we were heading in that direction. I was pretty optimistic about how things were going. And then in terms of unemployment, I think we can see levels approaching the three and a half to three and three quarters that we saw before. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty bullish three or four years out, uh, but we still have a lot of work to do right now to make sure that the, the amount of pain and damages that happens to this economy is minimized. So I think that that Staying on the local and the immediate term is something that we all should to try to, to continue doing uh, for a bit longer. Well, I'm sure you know uh, one of the criticisms on Wall Street after the meeting was that you can talk about getting over 2%, but you can't get to 2%. Why, why do you think that's going to happen? Well, for me, I, I've been talking with my team a lot on this. And just before the, the crisis, and this is something that I've I tried to say in, in interviews, and I've told talked to my colleagues about this, 
many of the signals of inflation uh, were at 2%, if not above 2%. So I think we were actually much, much closer to our target uh, just pre-crisis uh, than I think has been really recognized in the press. Um, that said, uh, we are not in that place now, but I have confidence that once we get back into sort of stable growth and, and robust recovery, uh, that we can get back to that pre-crisis pre level where all the signs were positive. So I, I think that we've, we, in the last few years, have done a lot to get inflation uh, to a place where, where I could be comfortable with it and would suggest that the economy is really moving in a sustained way. Well, is your policy now inflationary in and of itself? So that's an interesting question. I guess what I would say right now is the pandemic is something that we've never seen before. This is a, a historic type of event. And if you look at the inflation numbers, there's a lot of noise in there. So month to month and quarter to quarter, the, the, the elements of a CPI, for example, are showing wide swings and much wider swings than you would ordinarily see. So it's hard to know exactly what signal we're seeing right now. At the same time, how labor markets have evolved is, has been so dramatic and the stresses that have happened to particular businesses and how the pandemic has hit certain sectors much differently than others, it really makes it hard to tell exactly uh, what's happening in terms of inflation. It's something that we're gonna continue to work on. I'm hopeful that as we get further along in the recovery, a lot of these signals will become clearer. A lot of the noise that's happening and the extreme values will, will be reduced and be eliminated so we can really understand sort of where the economy is standing. Uh, I'm wondering what more, if anything, you can do. Your tool is interest rates. You've got interest rates at zero. You have tools to push down interest rates. But is there anything more the Fed can do to stimulate the economy, or is it really over to Congress now? Well, I would say Congress has a, a very significant role. Fiscal policy is going to be important because the types of things that can happen in fiscal policy are not things that we actually have authority to do. So grants have been very important to small businesses through things like the Paycheck Protection Program. Those sorts of things create much more stable bridges than the type of lending that we can do. What I am doing here at our bank is a couple of things. So first, really trying to monitor the economy, make sure we're talking to small businesses, to families, and to banking institutions so we understand where things are working well and where things are not working well, and we can deliver that information uh, to policymakers in Washington. A second thing that we're doing is we are trying to engage with communities across this country, giving them advice on things around economic development, around sustaining uh, small businesses in times of crisis that we've learned over years and decades of research and engagement in that space. So while we don't have a lot of energy uh, in terms of interest rates, uh, there are lots of other ways that we can try to sustain things, and we're doing all of those things. Another thing I would say is we're, we're also engaging with banking institutions, encouraging them to deploy their capital, and also to find ways to, to provide relief for businesses and to families who are struggling uh, with their cash flows as a result of the, the public health response to the crisis. We're speaking with Dr. Rafael Bostic, the president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, if you were to talk to a member of Congress today, what would you say about the economy? Uh, earlier this month, you saw, uh, you saw definite signs of slowing. Do you still see that? So we definitely see signs of slowing. You know, Mike, is interesting. For me, we, our, our team has been thinking about how do you characterize the economy today? And what we're actually seeing is something that's akin to a less than signal. 
or symbol, where some parts of the economy, both in terms of geographies and sectors, are doing quite well and growing, and others are struggling or, 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 or have struggled or are actually getting worse. And, and so one of the things that's been very interesting and a challenge for all of us is how do you take an aggregate number that is really an average of those two things and convert that into a, a, a discussion of the, of the economy? What I would tell a policymaker is, look, there are lots of sectors where there's still a lot of pain and disruption that's going on. There are a lot of families who uh, have a significant amount of uncertainty, and those things will wear on our psyche and our ability to grow. So I would encourage them to think about ways that they might provide support to, to help those who are in more precarious positions uh, not have to struggle and worry. You know, we do an analysis uh, of evictions, for example. We have a, an evictions monitor, and we've been working with uh, Georgia Tech and some folks here in Atlanta. Uh, eviction levels in Atlanta are higher now than they were a year ago, to, and the trend is going in the wrong direction. I've heard reports of this happening all over the place, which suggests that this precariousness is very present. And to the extent that that becomes a reality for a large number of people, uh, the amount of pain we're gonna have in the economy and the challenges we face to get to a full robust recovery are just gonna be much greater. I don't know if you uh, use WeChat or TikTok, I kinda hope we don't see you on TikTok, but- No, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, given that it's the news of today, let me ask you this. Uh, the policy, the, the trade tariff policy towards China, has that had a direct impact on your district? So the, the tariff policy has, has impacted uh, companies in a, in a complex set of ways. So, you know, some, some businesses in, in my district have direct and important uh, business uh, activities in China itself, and they're reporting uh, significant uh, difficulties. Uh, a lot of our agriculture sector uh, exports to China and has relationships with them uh, in that regard. And so it's been harder for them. Uh, and th that adjustment is something that, that we're trying to, um, well, I'm trying to see how they're adjusting and what types of things they're gonna do, but it definitely has taken a toll. Uh, but that said, you know, the relationship with China is complex uh, and the trade issue uh, has to be weighed against things like in in intellectual property and the protection of, of our uh, comparative advantage. And so, uh, how this goes and how it plays out uh, is important. We, we um, well, I would say I don't have a, a, stake, a, a stake in this in terms of having authority to do things, but it is something that as I see things happening, I try to make sure that policymakers in DC know, and I try to explain to our businesses and, and contacts across the district uh, how this might look moving forward. You've noted that the, the pandemic has had a disproportionate effect on low-income people and communities of color, and there's really no argument about that. But what can the Fed do about that? Well, you know, I get calls about this all the time, and our bank has been an important source of information for communities across the CIS district. And, and some of the things that we're doing are working with local government officials, trying to give them advice on ways that they might help their businesses. Uh, we've been talking a lot, actually, just about uh, how you maintain uh, business activities in the time of COVID. So how do you think about uh, uh, customer flows in and out of stores uh, to, to engage with that? We've also tried to engage with philanthropy uh, to, to tell them about the natures of stresses, 
and suggest that there may be ways for them to have real significant impacts in the communities that they serve. And so we're actually going much more micro in terms of trying to help those communities uh, because there are so many different contexts. You know, I would also say this is not just a, a lower income and minority community issue. You go to a lot of the rural places, the more rural places of the district, they're struggling as well. Um, they had had challenges before. And as we've seen uh, in many, many instances, this COVID crisis has exacerbated a lot of the, the disparities that we've seen. And so we're trying to work with rural areas as well uh, to help them figure out solutions uh, for this new world that we live in. Uh, Joe Biden has suggested the Fed should act aggressively uh, to combat racial inequality, even leaving open the possibility of adding a third mandate uh, for the Fed. Uh, there's also talk that perhaps you should incorporate the black unemployment rate into your framework. What do you think of those ideas? Well, they're interesting ideas. I think that we have to th consider those sorts of things in a, in a broader context. So for me, the black unemployment rate is one measure of how the economy is performing for a, an important segment of our population. But we have a Latino uh, unemployment rate that is also higher than the national average and has been for a long time. You can think about uh, labor force participation for women, for example. So this is a multi-dimensional issue. And I think that uh, we gotta think hard about how do we capture those all those dimensions to figure out what's going on. I will tell you, though, I think that the, the policies coming out of the long run framework are uh, important because uh, we are committing to letting the economy grow a little more robustly than we might have otherwise. And that has and should have positive implications for the ability of minorities and women and lower income people to be fully attached to the economy. Uh, one last question here. Uh, the Fed has suggested it is looking into its communication strategies. You struck all the language about the summary of economic projections from the new framework. And I'm wondering if we're going to see a different kind of communication uh, arriving by the end of the year. So I, I don't know about that. What I'm going to try to do is make sure that I continue to communicate as clearly as possible with my constituencies. I think we've done a, a pretty good job. And, and Mike, let me just say one other thing on, on that last question, which is you know, another thing that we're trying to do is engage communities and constituencies. Today, we're actually having a conference on racial justice and finance, where we're gonna try to, to bring in different voices and have them grapple much more deeply with issues about race. We're gonna continue to have those sorts of conversations moving forward. And I think we're gonna try as much as possible, and I'm gonna work to make sure that the Federal Reserve is a place that people look to for thoughtful solutions to issues around uh, racial equity uh, and disparities that we've seen historically. Rafael Bostic, thank you very much for joining us, the president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve, joining us on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. Thanks for coming on today. We're thrilled that David Kirkpatrick could join us on short notice with Technonomy, obviously, and of course his wonderful book, The Facebook Effect. And he has been looking particularly at WeChat for many years for its ability to monitor and move forward social messaging as well as its sheer app utilization. David Kirkpatrick, what is the impact to Americans if WeChat goes away? The impact to Americans if WeChat goes away is not huge because Americans generally don't use WeChat. The people that use WeChat in the United States are people who are 
trying to communicate with people in China for the most part. I think the, the, probably the biggest single group of people in the U.S. who use WeChat are, are Chinese students who are here in the United States, as well as Chinese business people who are traveling in the United States and Americans with close ties to China. I mean, in China, WeChat is an indispensable, not daily, not hourly, moment-to-moment -moment tool for life. It is kind of a combination of Facebook, Google, eBay, Amazon, uh, you know, all rolled into one. Oh, PayPal, uh, it all rolled into one. You know, you, you can kind of do everything with WeChat. You can order your lunch. You can talk to your kid. Uh, you can, uh, you know, arrange to get a car. You can do anything. David, you're the author of the book, The Facebook Effect, uh, the inside story of a company that is connecting the world. We're talking now about WeChat that can feed my kids and also homeschool them. I am looking forward to some app that can do that, frankly. I am wondering what it means for the media world to have Chinese media companies that are taking over and connecting the world. What is the significance of that? Well, in the larger sense, there's no question it's a geopolitical threat. Um, that, you know, and that, that this is one of the real challenges, something we've talked about on this program before, that the necessity and the likelihood of regulation coming down on American tech companies that have a global presence. Um, the reality is that in, in, in any vacuum that we're created, if we do start to suppress, uh, for, even for good reasons, our own tech companies, Chinese companies will come in to fill the void because they are growing very rapidly, they're enormously capable, and they do have the full backing of the Chinese government, which gives them enormous resources even beyond the more obvious financial ones that they have. So, uh, you know, this is, this is combined with the fact that, for example, Huawei has already built the Internet infrastructure for most of the planet. You know, they, Mao had this, I was just reading yesterday, Mao had a philosophy of surrounding the cities by starting with the villages. And, you know, Chinese technology, especially infrastructure technology, has done the same thing with the developing world moving toward the developed world. So now they've basically won in the physical infrastructure. And the, these, these apps, which are more the content apps, are easily to come in their wake. They're already flowing across all the infrastructure. But the point is that China is enormously competent technologically. And, and they have a very clear global strategy for soft power and hard power, but particularly soft power influence, which we lack uh, because of our free market system. And I'm not saying that's been a mistake, but we are in a very precarious yeah. situation when it comes to Chinese influence in tech at a global level. David, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook made that argument a couple of months ago on Capitol Hill. Do you think that argument is starting to resonate in D.C.? Yes, I think it is. I, I, I'm very suspicious whenever Zuckerberg makes any argument these days because I think he's so <laughs> self-interested. Uh, but, but in that sense, I, I don't disagree with him uh, on this rare occasion. Um, yeah, I, I, it's particularly taken effect, interestingly, among conservative Republicans like Marco Rubio and uh, Josh Hawley, uh, Republican senators. Uh, but, but I think you can't help looking at anything right now through the, the inevitable lens of the presidential campaign. And even if you look at the Commerce Department announcement this morning that they're going to ban WeChat and, and TikTok, you know, the first sentence of the thing is, 
in keeping with President Trump's great leadership and desire to do this and this and that. I mean, we never used to get government regulations issued that way, you know, with fealty to the great leader kind of thing. Uh, that's, that's been coming yeah. more and more, and it, 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 it worries me. David, in the, in the bluster of all this and the emotion, is, is Business Insider just has out a nice question. Is this enforceable? Uh, yes, I, I think it's enforceable, probably. Um, you can enforce it by, you know, first of all, banning them in the app stores of Google and, and, uh, and uh, Apple. Um, and, 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 yes, you can use a lot of tools to force Internet activity not to happen in certain ways. And uh, um, I think there will be ways around it. I mean, People, you know, in the U.S., people probably could use VPNs to use Chinese apps, exactly. just like Americans can use VPNs to use American apps yeah. in China. So there's elements that would be unenforceable, but I don't think that would be my concern. I think my concern is more or less chaos. Um, and I think also it's a very odd thing in a way, considering that the young people of America, the youngest people, but even some medium young people are so devoted to TikTok uh, to take away one of their favorite toys and, and favorite ways of spending their time uh, right before an election <clears throat> doesn't strike me as necessarily that strategically wise. David Kirkpatrick, great to catch up with you, sir. Linda contributor. One thing I would say, Lisa Abramowitz, more than anything, is then the news takes over, and it is news of the many stories of China and the United States. And this has been something percolating in the backdrop, but now there is the increasing uncertainty between U.S. and China over TikTok, over WeChat, uh, and, and really... On the relationship going forward between these two countries with the hardliners digging heels in, and Brad Setzer has been following this from the flows, the money flows state of the picture, which I love, Tom, because we can talk a lot about the politics, but really we have to look at the numbers and the money. And what the money is saying is that the trade deficit between the U.S. with China is deepening. Brad Setzer uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations, senior fellow uh, for international affairs, and also uh, longstanding uh, background in, 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 in international relations in the government as well. Brad, what do you make of this whole TikTok WeChat news this morning? Oh, I think, uh, well, for one, the U.S. hasn't been very clear uh, about the demands that it was placing on TikTok. I mean, there was the whole deal with Oracle for a while suggested that uh, TikTok could retain or ByteDance could retain majority control, uh, which would be unusual. And then I think China is also flexing its muscles, trying to limit uh, the export of various source code. And so I think for now, uh, you know, the U.S. seems to be signaling that it wants uh, a full divesture or at least a shift in majority control. And China is resisting that and the company is caught in between. If you take a step back, you've been doing a lot of great work on the flows, the international flows between the U.S. and China. And if you take a look at what the legacy of the Trump administration is, has it created a more even playing field between these two countries? I mean, no, I mean, I think it pretty clearly uh, hasn't addressed uh, the broad set of concerns that uh, many U.S. firms had operating in 
China, uh, nor from the Chinese point of view, uh, has it given them certainty around their relationship with the U.S. Uh, but it is striking that after the phase one trade deal, U.S. imports from China and China's exports to the U.S. really have rebounded. Uh, and so even with all the uh, friction, all of the uncertainty, uh, right now China's exporting about as much to the U.S. as it ever has. It's a really quite striking outcome. Uh, one, uh, probably influenced by some of the changes in demand around the pandemic, but I think it also illustrates how difficult at the end of the day it is to really fully decouple. Brett Setzer, this is one big game of chicken, and whether it's Vinoda Agarwal at Berkeley or Avinash Dixit in The Art of Strategy at Princeton or what you studied at Oxford, chicken's a lot more sophisticated than we perceive. What is the risk to America of this game of chicken? Well, I think there are... You know, if, if you're thinking purely about uh, bite dance and TikTok, it is that some teenagers may not be uh, uh, amused on their phone as much as they normally would be for a period of time. Travesty. From the you know, travesty. From the broader uh, strategic point of view, I think you know a, a game of chicken and threats and blusters is probably not the most efficient way to move both economies to a slightly less to a state where they are slightly less integrated with each other. And the hard part has been defining what the slightly less integrated world looks like. Do you perceive, Brad Setzer, as one of our great economic thinkers, that the United States is prepared for the response of China to what is perceived by many as bluster? How are we going to respond to whatever they say about WeChat or indeed about TikTok as well? I think you have to be prepared to deal with the consequences of your action. Uh, And if China says, as a matter of policy, we would rather shut TikTok down than have a forced sale, uh, TikTok, well, ByteDance, will be forced to do so. Uh, One of the classic uh, insights of strategy is you shouldn't make a threat that you're not willing to carry out. And uh, to the extent that the U.S. assumes that China will um, uh, easily accommodate what China perceives as irrational demands on the part of the U.S., the U.S. is making a mistake. Does the election play into this? We've had a number of conversations this morning, Professor Setzer, that say, well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Does the election play into this, or is this a bipartisan and separate discussion with China? I mean, there's always a balance. I think at the end of the day, there is a a bipartisan sense that the economic relationship with China still needs to evolve further, uh, change in various ways. And that plays out uh, through a set of actions. And whenever uh, a decision is made that forces a deadline in the period before Uh, a presidential election, it's impossible to say that politics didn't play some role in the timing. But I think it's a reflection of a, you know, an ongoing struggle on the part of the U.S. political system to translate a desire 
for a different economic relationship with China into a uh, into reality. And Brad, we've been talking all morning, and you just flicked at this, at this bipartisan wish to even the playing field between the U.S. and China, this feeling that something's gotten out of whack. And you served in the U.S. Treasury Department studying the economic relationships internationally. What do you think people should be looking to do to actually create a, a better environment that would be agreed upon on all sides, at least within the parties in the U.S.? Well, I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, that the basic question about how open the U.S. should be to China when China is not going to be fully open to the U.S. Uh, is an important one. That's the implicit question being addressed in the uh, ByteDance uh, TikTok uh, discussion, given that China's own Internet is pretty uh, closed to consumer applications from outside. Uh, and then I think there is the broader question of uh, how much China will change. And if the answer is that China isn't going to change very much, then the question becomes how much uh, further or how much do you want to roll back our current level of integration mm. with an unchanged Chinese economy. The tariffs have played some role in that. Uh, but the tariffs have probably, you know, I mean, the striking thing is that even with the tariffs, uh, the trade imbalance with China has basically bounced back in the past couple of months. It's not fully back, but it just really right. uh, returned. And so probably the policies that are in place to date aren't sufficient. I think the new factor, and I think this is a potentially important factor, is that the direction of pressure, at least in my judgment, on China's currency looks to be changing. Right. It looks like China's currency is under pressure to appreciate. And a stronger Chinese currency in the past has been much more effective than tariffs at creating broad incentives to move uh, production and supply chains around the world and have them less focused now, on China. Brad, thank you so much. Brad Setzer was with the Council on Foreign Relations. Right now, this is a joy. Rebecca Patterson held court at J.P. Morgan for years and then ran Bessemer Trust uh, with looking at long-term serious money. For some reason unknown, she decided to dive off the deep end late last year into the land of Dalio in Prince. I can't think any, I, I honestly can't think, Rebecca, of a greater shift than going from Bessemer Trust to the hellhole known as Bridgewater Associates in Connecticut. Have you survived in, in doing research to help these animals. What was the first day like? <laughs> so the biggest surprise for me at Bridgewater, I've been there since January, is that for whatever you read in the media, and I'm a former journalist, I have a lot of respect for the media, but oh, yeah, I have yeah, to say, yeah. no, 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 seriously, <laughs> my experience there has been so different from what you read. Um, it's humbling as heck. You know, it's, it's some of the smartest people I've ever worked sure. with, and, and they question everything. So everything you think you know, you have to reexamine. But it's also been one of the warmest places I've ever worked at, and I did not see that coming. I did not expect people to be calling yeah. me at home every couple of weeks saying, how's it going? I know you're onboarding via Zoom. Um, so that's been really lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm working harder than I've ever yeah. worked in my life. But it's good. I'm challenged. I well, love it. I do a banner, the Dalio honeymoon, but that would get us in trouble. <laughs> okay, Rebecca, I want to get down to business right now. Bob Prince stopped the world at Davos talking about the challenges of the lower bound. It 
ain't working. I mean, Catherine Burton's essay the other day, your major all-weather fund, it's single-digit returns and some selected losses as well. It's just not working. Can risk parity strategies work at the lower bound? You know, bonds certainly are not providing the level of return or the level of diversification they have had for the last couple of decades. That's obvious to everybody. But what all weather is all about is really getting smart diversification and figuring out how to get betas in different environments, whether you're in a rising or falling growth environment, a rising or falling inflation environment. And so what the team at Bridgewater has been doing for the last couple of years, but really obviously focusing very much on over this past year, is thinking what other combinations of assets can we put in a portfolio that are going to achieve that same balance? And the good news is I think there are plenty of ways to do it. So it's not saying dump all your bonds, absolutely. It's saying make sure you have that diversification and balance and things like inflation-linked bonds, things like looking at a basket of global, still bonds, things like gold, things like looking at different types of equities that are going to have more stable cash flows. <laughs> there are ways you can continue to achieve right. that balance. So, so we have to be creative. But in, in a world where interest rates are, you know, converging around zero, but it's still absolutely possible to achieve the aims of all weather. Rebecca, what I find fascinating here around the core Bridgewater theme that Dalio invented of, of return equals cash plus a beta plus alpha. Great. I mean, I get the foundational idea, but things have changed. Now, that formula is founded on full faith and credit bonds is an anchor to the mathematics. Your new strategies don't have that full faith and credit anchor, do they? Oh, yeah, sure they do. I mean, you're still anchoring to cash. You're still anchoring to what are the risk premia for different asset classes and kind of adding those up together and then figuring out how much risk you want to have in each. So I think that basic principle is still in place. You just have to think about the, that bond portion of your portfolio differently than the past. So I think, I think it's not as big a deal, perhaps, as you're suggesting. Uh, Rebecca, good morning from London. Talk to me a little bit about correlations. I mean, we've spent a, you know, a fair amount of time also looking at the rally in, in August to try and figure out what these correlations mean, whether they were really any different to what we saw after you know, the, the dot-com bubble burst. What can you tell us about what it will take to have correlations that go back to a bit more normality? Well, I, I understand what you're saying about August and, and even in September with some, some of the moves we've seen in the markets. But I think if we take a step back, we are seeing a lot of differentiation still in the markets this year, especially around the pandemic. You know, between um, how different countries have handled the virus and Francine, you in London, you're seeing one version of that. We're seeing a different version in the U.S. You have some countries like China doing an amazing job, other countries like Mexico, not so much. Um, so you have differentiation in the virus control. You have differentiation in the policy response. So the U.S., you know, huge monetary and fiscal easing very quickly. Other countries doing a lot less or maybe later. So that's a second factor. And then the third factor, and you just touched on this with the bank stocks in Europe, is the makeup of the economy and the makeup of those markets. And when you put those three things together, 
What I think you are seeing is a lot of differentiation in how the markets are moving year to date in terms of equity returns, a country and currency returns as well. A country like Mexico versus a country like China, you're getting very, very different performance. So I, while I hear you on what you're saying about recent correlations, I think if you can take a slightly wider lens on that question, what you're seeing from the pandemic, as horrible as it is, is that it is providing investors with some pretty good opportunities for diversification in portfolios that comes from lower correlations because of these three factors, the virus, the policy response, and then the makeup of the economy. An economy that's heavily service-oriented, tourism-oriented, global trade-oriented is obviously going to be hit a lot differently than a country where it's more focused on goods, more focused inward domestically. And Rebecca, one of the other things that we've been trying to figure out is, of course, you know, these deflationary pressures that a lot of central banks are worried around uh, the world about, including the Fed. Is there really a danger that a lot of our Western democracies and Western economies are becoming much more like Japan? And, and what has Japan taught us in how to deal with it? Oh, I, I love that you asked that question. Um, and and Tom, Tom and I share this. Francine, I don't know you well enough to know if you're part of the club, but um, history is, is so much fun to study and understand because while it doesn't predict the future, it definitely informs your view on the future. And Japan is such a great case study right now. As you think about what Japan tried to do when Abe came to office in the end of 2012, you know, early 13, he launched Abenomics. They raised the inflation target, they increased asset purchases, they did everything you would want to do to try to generate some inflation. But what they failed to do in 2014 is continue with the fiscal easing to support the monetary policy. So when they started tightening fiscally, you had fiscal and monetary policy at odds, and that undermined their goal, and you saw inflation start to come back down. So what we're seeing now in the world, and I think this is such an important thing for your listeners and viewers to understand, is, is we've really moved into a new era, almost a, a new paradigm is what we're calling it. In that monetary policy, the way we grew up with it, it doesn't work anymore. You know, the, the ammunition for central banks just to raise and lower interest rates, especially lowering interest rates, that's pretty much behind us. It's been behind us for a while. That's why they adopted asset purchases, quantitative easing. But even now, that's not doing the trick. It, quantitative easing is going to reflate equities, reflate financial assets, but it doesn't get money into the hands of the people who need it. So now you're in this world where you have to have more coordinated fiscal and monetary policy. So what the Fed's doing to try to avoid becoming Japan, having entrenched low inflation or deflation, God help us, what they're trying to do is be aggressive pushing up this in, uh, the interpretation of its mandate to try to get higher inflation, keep rates at zero at least till 2024. But that's only going to well. work if they have fiscal policy supporting them. And so that's what I think we need to watch really carefully right now. Is the fiscal policy going to be there to go hand yeah. in hand with the monetary policy? Chairman Powell and President Trump on the same page with Rebecca Patterson of uh, Bridgewater. Francine wants to go eight different ways here, Rebecca. I've got one more Bridgewater question. The massive issue for any alternative investment hedge fund property, including your heritage of Bessemer Trust and J.P. Morgan, is you got to do better than the other guys. And that's all wrapped around some form of actuarial assumption or guesstimate of what the proper return is. For Ray Dalio and your shop, what's the new assumption of what your portfolios can do? Are you wedded 
to a single digit grind to, you know, to recover from August back to that? Or can you actually do better and deliver double digit return? Well, we're certainly aspiring to deliver double-digit returns. That's what we're trying to do for our clients. Um, I think you know what this environment shows us in terms of returns is that you you have to think outside the box. You can't just look at the S and P and think that's going to do it for you. Even though that market has led for the last decade, more or less, it doesn't mean you should extrapolate that and assume you're going to get the same thing over the next decade. So thinking about not just one equity market, but a, a basket of different equities get you some of that correlation reduction, but also the, the possibility of return. And then look beyond that. Um, are there opportunities in currency markets and credit markets? Are there opportunities in inflation-linked bonds, gold? One thing investors are not grappling with yet, in my opinion, we don't know if we're going to get inflation in the next year or two. We don't know if the Fed's going to be successful. But we know the scope for higher inflation over the next couple of years is greater today than we've seen for a very long time because of the money printing, the fiscal deficits, because of the central bank focus on this. And so what we want to do is think about, okay, how do we make sure we get the returns we want for our clients, but also protect them against what we could see that we haven't even had to think about? Um, as, as Powell says, we don't even think about thinking about it, uh, inflation. So do you look at your portfolio and say, if I need a certain outcome and I can't afford mistakes, am I prepared for this possible mistake? I, well, it's not a mistake now, we want it, but the inflation side of it. So yes, we're still aiming for high returns. Yes, we still think we can achieve them. But in addition to that, we also wanna make sure we don't take our eye off the inflation ball, which hasn't been with us in a long time, but it could come back. Rebecca, what do you do with something like Euro, right? The strength in Euro, is could be problematic for the European Central Bank and they're kind of you know navigating on how to handle it because they can't target it but of course it has an impact on inflation expectations and all of that are, are we looking at a possible currency war on our hands yeah Francine I think that's a really good question you know with the the Fed kind of threw out the opening salvo by changing its how it's interpreting its mandate aiming for two percent inflation over a cycle aiming for maximum employment and it'll be great to have Bostic here on your show later today to talk more about that especially the employment part so when the Fed did that you know, all else equal, it probably pushes down the US dollar. But we all know currencies are pairs, so all your other currencies are going up. But who wants a stronger deflationary currency right now? Not many places. So Europe obviously has started some very benign verbal intervention to talk down the euro. It needs to do more. It's doing its strategic review now. It's going to come out next year. It would not surprise me at all if they follow the Fed, almost because they have to. They can't afford to have that euro wane on their economy, especially given what large percent of GDP is exports for them. Again, I go back to though, monetary can't do it by itself anymore. We're in a world where fiscal and monetary have to work more in coordination. Well, so you've got to get the yeah. fiscal stimulus from Europe. That's a tall order for them. Okay, Rebecca, we are out of time. Thank you so oh. much. Generous of you to be with us this morning. Rebecca Patterson <laughs> of Bridgewater. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.